Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate, it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Monday, August the 3rd, 2009. Which means it's one day after August 2nd, 2009, so it's one day after my birthday, and to all of you that uh, noticed that and sent me a thank you on Facebook or what have you, I appreciate you, thank you, and uh, just know all of you guys on Facebook that sent me these Mafia War things and uh, Werewolf Wars and Vampire This and so and so that and all these little cool applications, I'm sure they're cool, I don't ever do them, so I'm not being mean when I don't respond to your request for aid when a werewolf's eating you or whatever the hell it is. Um, just don't have time for it. <laughs> anyway, um, we're going to continue with the format that we started about a week and a half ago, where I do an intro segment, then we do our housekeeping, then we move on to today's main subject. So today's Monday. Once again, I have a chauffeur. My son Matt is at the helm, and I am in the uh, the, the side seat, the, uh, the the passenger seat, kicked back, a little bit reclined more than normal, so maybe I'll be a little bit more relaxed more than normal. And uh, the ass clowns on the highway are his problem. But on the intro segment, we have some ass clownish uh, antics to talk about. Uh, a couple different ones. Number one is, I'm sure you've heard this by now. Well, I, I, I can't, I, I'll, I'm not going to say anything about this today because everybody's heard it already because it's news everywhere. But then I thought, you know what, my take on it's probably different than whatever everybody else in the news will tell you. And that is this pinhead, ass clown as it were, up in uh, the Bronx, New York, that spent $70,000 to get a degree in IT. $70,000 at the college of her choice, which was the Bronx University of whatever. And uh, graduated in May. Now, they didn't say she graduated, like, with honors or summa cum laude or anything like that. So we, we, we pretty much know that she didn't. Because if you're a journalist and you want to sensationalize something, anything like that, you would, of course, and she graduated with honors. So we have a, a student that got through college. That's, that's the big accomplishment. She's 27. All right, she just got her bachelor's degree at 27. I'm not putting anybody down that goes back to school late in life at all, but I don't know. I'm just smelling five, six, seven years of college to get a four-year degree here. I could be wrong. If I am, I am. I'm sorry. But what makes this person an ass clown is that you actually think that a degree is supposed to guarantee you a job. You weren't paying attention. Now, she said what she's suing the college for is because their uh, their help program for graduates hasn't done enough for her. I've got some advice for this, Pinhead. One, um, check out your interview style. I'm thinking that might be part of your problem. Two, lower your sights a little bit. I don't care that you're 27 and have a degree. You're looking for an entry-level position. Number, uh, I don't even know what number it is. I lost track of my count there. Is it number three? Whatever it is. Um, the next thing that she probably needs to do is look outside of the Bronx. Uh, the fact that mom lives in the Bronx and she's still living with mom and mom 
mom's upset because they're both in debt now. Just thinking, maybe broaden your horizons a little bit. And number four, for a perfect place to find a job, please consider moving to Washington, D.C. and apply for a job at the Information Technology Department at the United States Congress. I'm sure you'll fit in perfectly there. Folks, this is why I tell people, don't get a degree unless you know what the hell you want to do. Figure out an actual career path and start working in that career path as you're finishing your degree when you can afford to take an entry-level position. And for God's sakes, don't go $70,000 worth of debt for an IT degree when they can bring some guy in from Delhi who will work for half your weight that's got five degrees. All right, let's be real here about what a degree in today's economy is worth. And just because the college seems like it's a special college, doesn't really mean it's a special college. You could have gone to a state-level school, and you could have spent about half of that. But no, you had to go to the special Bronx whatever university, um, which I don't know, that really would impress me on your resume. Um, next ass clowns are the uh, Congress and the Senate and the ass clown president who are trying to determine how they're going to pay for this national health care pile of crap. And their big solution is they want to tax the wealthiest people, people that make over a million dollars, an additional 5.4% of their income. So if you make a million dollars, they're just going to slap another 5.4% tax on you. Okay. Let me think about this and tell you what I would do if I was a guy earning a million dollars a year and you took this money away from me and I wanted it back. 5.4% of a million dollars. I know their Congress and our Senate might struggle with this because they seem to have a problem with math. $54,000 a year. That's right about what I pay a good, solid, dependable annual salary at for kind of a mid-level person. So all I have to do, and if I'm making a million dollars a year, I'm employing lots of people. I just have to find one of those people I can cut, and you'll get your uh, 54000 from me, but I'm going to get my 54000 from him. And now he's not paying you any income tax because he doesn't have a job anymore. He's not giving you any sales tax because he's not buying anything anymore. You got hurt as the government. Your tax revenues will decline if you do this. The guy got hurt, and I still have my money. And I'm going to get my money if I'm a guy making a million dollars a year. Those guys aren't stupid. They're not a bunch of greedy people laying around taking baths in $500 bills, people. A guy that figures out how to earn a million dollars a year is a pretty slick guy, and he employs pretty slick people to help him keep as much of it as possible. Please understand, they won't just lay down and take it up the butt. All right, It's not going to happen. They are going to figure out how to get out of it. And that's a very simple solution. One job. I get my money back. And I don't know, maybe I'll just figure out to play with my pricing schemes a little bit and raise them uh, half a percent, and it'll go to the consumer. One way or another, I'm not paying it. And then, <laughs> you know, what are they going to do to make sure that everybody participates in this ass clownery, this ass hattery, this national health care thing? Let's say you're a young 22-year-old kid. And uh, you're like, I don't need health insurance, or you know, I just don't want to be involved with it. If I get sick, I'm going to pay my own bills, and uh, if I get an accident, I get an accident. I mean, you know, maybe I'll carry catastrophic or whatever, but I'm not going to have health care the way that everybody else does because I don't need it because I'm 22. I think I'm bulletproof. Uh, you're going to get a fine of 2.5% of your income. So that means if you make that $50,000 a year salary, you're going to get a fine for about 1250 bucks because you chose not to have health insurance. And the government's not running our lives. Well, folks, I don't 
no, no. I thought it was going to be it for the ass clownery today, but I got one more for you before I move on. Barack, the Prince Obama, is now getting ready to renege on his promise to not raise taxes for the middle class. We're getting confirmation out of Washington this morning that it just may not be possible to not raise taxes at all for the middle class and get us out of this massive deficit that we inherited. We didn't inherit it. He's spent more money than any president ever has in his first 90 days than any other president spent in two and a half to three years. So, you know what I say? Bring it on. Bring it on. Raise the income tax, Barack Obama. Raise a tax somewhere. Raise any tax on the middle class that's clear cut that that's what you've done. Go ahead and break that promise. And then phone up George Bush Sr. and ask him how that's going to work out for you. All right, so that's enough of the ass clownery. Let's get into the housekeeping today. Um, number one, make sure you're supporting our advertisers. Advertiser today, Tactical Response Gear. James Jaeger and his operation, they are great folks, great equipment, great training. And right now he's running a discount um, through, I guess, into the fall. Uh, it's, I think it's 10% off for active duty law enforcement. Um, 25% off. I might, if I get this wrong, I'm sorry. You can check it out on the site. I think it's 25% off for active duty military and retired military. Uh, it might be 20, you know what it is? It's 25% for active duty military, uh, retired military and law, law enforcement, and it's 10% for everybody else. So, uh, he's got some good deals right now, so go check that out. Uh, next, consider joining our discussion forum. Again, I want to throw a call out to international listeners, Australia and England. I'm getting emails from people saying, I wish there were more people from my country that would get involved on the forum. I know there's quite a few of you out there because I read my stats every day online and uh, there are a lot of people from Australia and England listening to the show so get on the forum and get involved and everybody else get involved too next if you think you get more than 20 cents worth of value out of the survival podcast today consider joining the member support brigade you'll get exclusive content available only to members you'll get some really cool giveaways one of them is you will get a free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle um, LLC Safe Castle Royals Discount Club which will give you a huge discount on everything, or just about everything that Safe Castle sells. That's just one freebie you'll get. That's worth $19. There's some other um, free ebooks in there from James Talmud Stevens, the best-selling author ever in the preparedness industry. Uh, altogether, the total retail value of the giveaways right now is $64. So it covers your first year as an MSB member alone. Uh, next, Region 6 is having to get together. It will be a link. It's today's show notes. If you're in the Iowa area or are willing to travel to the Iowa area for a get-together, please contact Shannon Appleby. All right, so... um the questions keep coming, and I always have more than enough questions for Monday, and I have to cherry-pick the ones that I think are going to go good on the show. And you're making it really hard because there's not any bad ones. About the only ones I'm not doing are the ones where I go, I need to do a full show on that. <clears throat> so keep them coming, and we'll keep trying to do this at least once a week. The first question is an example of a great question because the person had to do a little bit of research to even come up with this question. I don't know if you'll like the answer, um, but... Kudos on the research. And the question is, does Section 10, Clause 1 of the Constitution, give states minting rights for gold and silver coinage? And it talks about the things that the states cannot do. And the point that this guy pulls out is make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. 
Alright, so that would mean that the states inherently would then be allowed to make gold and silver coin a tender of payment in debts. Alright? Now, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but let me give you my take on this. Number one, just like two items before it in the list, it says the states may not coin money. So they can make gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts, but they also cannot coin money. So what that means to me is if the states wanted to uh, get together, let's say they were going to make a payment of debt, or they were going to even push money into their own local economy in any way, shape, or form that they chose to, or receive payment, and they wanted to go out and stamp a bunch of silver, one-ounce one silver uh, dollars, so to speak, out, um, and put the, just say the state of Texas seal on it. Um, that's fine. And you can take those things and take them for whatever an ounce of silver is worth today and accept them in exchange the same way you would any piece of silver. But it cannot be considered a currency, a coin, backed by the state of Texas for the purpose of legal tender. So in other words, no, that doesn't give the states the right to print their own money. In fact, one of the primary objectives of the Constitution was to make sure that we had a common currency in this country so that states weren't entering into their own treaties and their own foreign agreements without federal oversight. That's one of the few things the federal government is actually supposed to be responsible for doing. So no, they can't do it. Now, now you might say, well, but what they could do is just, you know, make a whole bunch of silver rounds and then start those into circulation within their state. That would be fine. But the thing about that is that's not making money and that doesn't really fix much because you can do that too. In fact, people have done it. There's a free Lakota bank has one ounce Lakota silver rounds. They even have merchants all over the country that will accept them with a certain value against them, a, a, a static value against them that only gets adjusted very occasionally based on silver pricing. And um, so... You know, that doesn't really fix anything, but good for you for looking that deep into it. And, you know, I may be somewhat off on this. Remember, I reserve the right to be wrong, especially on something like constitutional law. But that's how I take this to be. The states themselves can never mint a coinage and say that this one ounce of silver is 25 Texas dollars, where that number is arbitrary against the float of the silver price. Um, it probably wouldn't work anyway that way because as soon as the coin value became greater uh, in physical metal, then the face value, everybody would melt them or convert them to another currency. And as soon as it got too far the other way, nobody would accept them in exchange for anything other than the silver value. So no help there on the Federal Reserve nightmare that's running our country right now and the fact that our money is completely fiat and back by absolutely nothing, but good question. Next one, uh, pretty easy question to answer. How do you keep bugs out of stored food? Well, if you're storing your food the right way, it shouldn't be much of an issue anyway. Um, let me take that two sides. For long-term storage, your food should be in cans, jars, buckets, bottles, something that's tight and sealed. If you're in there, bugs shouldn't be a problem. Your biggest problem at that point, unless you have a good solid structure that's going to be good at keeping rodents out, is rodents chewing through. Understand, if you're storing your food anywhere where there are rodents, rodents will just make mincemeat out of a Rubbermaid tub. We have a Rubbermaid 
stupid garbage can that I keep sunflower seeds in for the bird feeders in my shed. And the squirrels, um, when the feeders ran out, we didn't replace them, got angry, figured out that the uh, seeds were in the garbage can, and ate a hole just about squirrel size right through the top of the garden garbage can. And when we returned from a vacation and I opened the garbage can and looked inside, there were no seeds left. It was just a pile of sunflower shells. Uh, they had actually gone in there and dug through them and sat in there and eaten every single seed. So if a squirrel can get in there, a rat, a mouse, etc., can get a Rubbermaid tub, something to think about uh, with your food storage. Otherwise, though, you shouldn't really have problems with bugs. If you're storing food, again, glass jars, five-gallon buckets, Rubbermaid tubs are good for keeping insects out. Original packaging, still intact, even if you're putting them into a second layer of storage, that will help as well. Once you've opened your food, you need to consume it quickly. It needs to come into the regular pantry inside the house or refrigerated, what have you, because that's when it's going to become most vulnerable. Otherwise, you shouldn't have too much trouble. The person that asked me this question, if you have a specific situation that you'd like me to address, follow up with me and tell me, I'm keeping my food this way and it should be safe, but I'm still having problems with this kind of bug. And I'll, I'll see what I can do to help you further. Um, next, I've got three questions from one guy. I uh, know two questions from one guy. Um, it's a 17-year-old kid named Brendan. He's an Eagle Scout. He's been listening to the show for a long time, and he says he's looking forward to turning 18, mostly so he can then be an active member of the Survival Podcast Forum because we do not knowingly allow minors on our forum for legal liability reasons. Uh, pretty cool, Brendan, that that's a, that's a big thing for you when you turn 18. I'm actually pretty honored uh, that you feel that way. Um, first question that Brendan has, though, is he says basically his dad's a sheep. He's not prepared for anything. How do I approach him? I'll tell you what, great question, but that's going to be tough for you. Um, you will always be your father's son, and uh, he will always feel in many ways that he must know more than you. That's that's a fundamental reality. Um, we can see this not just in father-son or mother-daughter relationships, but older-younger brother relationships. Um, you can often see it with teacher-student relationships. Many times you can see it with peers. That if, if you and a person that even considers themselves completely your peer, but they know you very well, they're very close, a friendship relationship, a close business relationship, if you have a big differing opinion, opinion on them on something that they're sure is true, especially when it follows the societal norm, they're not real open to listening to you. And we can go all the way back to uh, the Bible, if you want to look there, for an explanation of this, and that is the saying that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, this is not a religious sermon. I don't do religious sermons, but I quote the truth wherever I see it, and in that case, nothing could be more true than when you're very close to somebody, they're going to have a hard time accepting something that's radically different from the norm from you. But there is hope. The number one way you approach somebody with preparedness is not to tell them, hey, look, I'm afraid that, and we better do something because, because that, like, shakes them um, violently from their comfort zone. If they're a sheep, they're an ostrich, they're what have you. They're not prepared. And you, you, you force something on them like that. They have a tendency to entrench themselves deeper into where they're at. When you approach them with more of a, hey, look, um, there's just this news report about, you know, the swine flu thing. 
and uh, it says that they might quarantine people. And I know they might not do it right now, but do you think that there ever could be, in any case, a disease where they might do that? See, and if you ask a question that way, it's almost impossible to say no. It would be like, well, sure, it, it could happen. It might, yeah, but don't worry. I'm not real worried about it. I'm just, you know, just wondering, do you think it ever could happen? Well, yeah. Well, what would you do if it did? And then the mental computer, instead of switching off, switches on. Because it puts them into, like, this, this game scenario. And it's why people are so attracted to games from the old games, you know, board games and games with sticks and rocks in the, in, in, in the you know, ancient times and today with video games. It's why people are attracted to games, because it makes the mental computer turn on. So it makes the mental computer turn on. And they go into a scenario and they go, okay, well, we, well, we do what they told us to do. We'd stay home. Well, how long might we have to stay home? Um, well, we might have to stay home for a few weeks or maybe longer. Huh. What would we eat? Well, we need our food. Do we have three weeks' worth of food? Well, no. What will we do then? Let it go. <laughs> Plant a seed. Walk away. <laughs> you see, if you do that, then people start to go, well, wait a minute. Uh, this guy's on to something here. And you didn't force them into it. And you're not telling them what to do. And we just had one of our longtime listeners write me an email about watching uh, the, the show The Colony, which we'll talk about later this week after it airs, the next episode. And he said he's not real fond of the show itself, but it's been a great thing. Because he watched it with his wife, and she's been hard to get involved in this stuff all these years. And she's like, they're idiots, look what they're doing, they're doing this, what about this, what about security? So she's asking all these questions. So he just turns to her and goes, well, what do you do? What would you do? And then the mental dump starts. I would do this, I would do that, I would do this. They should have done this in advance, right? Because you're asking the question, what would you do? Now you're seeking advice. You might be leading the person to the conclusion. But if you go with the angle of seeking advice, it'll be a lot better. In your case, though, at 17, with an adult father who's put a roof over your head for 17 years and turned out a pretty damn good kid, give your dad some credit, man. He's done a pretty good job. You're proof of that. Um, The next one is, he says... uh, He's got a few thousand dollars saved in uh, CDs and bank accounts. If he does buy, like, you know, I say to put 10% of your savings in a gold and or silver. If he does that, where would he keep it? Should he keep it in a safety deposit box, or should he keep it at home in his room? Last week, I probably would have said it's probably a good idea to have a safe deposit box. A lot of people took exception to me with that, and when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Um... We don't have one right now. We've gone to a fire safe, and I've been thinking about getting one again. We, we really haven't had one since we left uh, PA. A lot of things have changed with safe deposit boxes in the last five or six years, some that I wasn't aware of. One is, under, and this is, this is tinfoil hat stuff, folks. And this was in place back when I still had one, and I didn't know anything about it. But apparently it's true. Under the Patriot Act, if they have a bank holiday, the federal government, when the banks are closed, can open all safety deposit boxes, and if they go into asset seizure, can seize assets from them, including gold and silver. Okay, I'm done right there. 
And, and I thought that was nuts when I heard it, but I checked it out, and it it appears to check out. And the other thing is a couple different people sent me a video of a lady on YouTube who was paying her bill at the bank. The bank screwed up and said she hadn't paid her bill for the safe deposit box and opened her box and auctioned off her stuff for non-payment. And some of it was some very old jewelry that belonged to her mother. And this lady's like in her 60s. So, um, in spite of the fact that they've actually had to reimburse her the monetary cost of those jewels, um, they can never really be replaced, folks. Let's be honest about that. Uh, She wanted to give them to her granddaughter. So, I say you keep your valuables until I can find a better solution at home. I also say don't be stupid and put it in a drawer or under your mattress. Go out and buy a good, solid fire safe or firebox and keep your valuables there. If you're going to have something that's worth a few hundred or a few thousand or more dollars in your home, spend 50 bucks to protect it. And you can get a pretty damn good, simple firebox for 50 bucks and make sure you put it in a very secure location if it's going to be in your home. Um, he also asked me, this one. that's why I said it was three. I get a side note here on books that I would recommend. Um, I'll just use this as an opportunity to once again say I'm compiling my personal book list on the site. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on book list. It's the third link down in the center column. You'll see it there. Uh, you can see the books, and these are all books that I actually recommend. They do link to Amazon. I do get paid if you buy the book from me. If you find the book for a better deal somewhere else, I get paid about 50 cents a book. So buy it somewhere else. But if you're going to buy it from Amazon, consider buying it um, on my recommendation by clicking through my link. And if you're going to buy something at Amazon anyway, go to my site, click the link, buy whatever you want, ignore my book, and you'll still help support the site because it's an Amazon affiliate. I'll still get paid. Because um, you will be cookied for, I think it's uh, 24 hours after going through my link. And unless you go through another affiliate cookie, I will get credit for the sale. So you can, for not one thin extra dime out of your pocket, help support the show that way. Um, the next thing is, dude asked me, he says, um, what can you cook with a solar oven? He saw my video where I made pork with apples, and he sees how it might be a really good slow cooker, but what else can you make with a solar oven? He wants to know specifically, can you cook bread with a solar oven? Can you boil water with a solar oven? Can you make pasta or rice? Can you make beer, and can you make meat? Let's go in order. Bread, absolutely. I make cornbread in my solar oven uh, just about every time I use it. It only takes about an hour. So, like the day I made the corn and apple sauce, I didn't tell anybody or show anybody this additional thing, but as soon as I pulled uh, the pork and apple sauce, when I pulled that out, um, what I then did was I mixed up some Marie Callender's cornbread mix, dropped it into a bread pan, stuck it in there for just about an hour, and it came out perfectly, and we had that cornbread with uh, our pork that night. So, no problem. You can make any kind of bread you want to. Boiling water, absolutely no problem. Put a pot of water in there. Yes, put the lid on. You want to use a dark pot like you use for cooking anything else, but it will boil water. If you're looking to sanitize water for drinking, actually the solar oven that I bought that comes from Global Sun Ovens came for free with this little bitty um, plastic tube. Inside that plastic tube is some wax. That wax melts at a specific temperature that even before the water boils, the water would be then considered safe for drinking. 
Right? Because you don't have to boil water to make it safe for drinking. Here's a trivia question. How long would you boil water to make it safe for drinking? The answer is zero minutes. And you might be thinking, has Jack flipped his lid? Well, no. The reality is that if you hold water at a temperature of, let's say, 190 degrees for a period of time, that it will actually become safe to drink without ever boiling. So when you boil water, by the time it gets up to a boil, it's been at these intermittent temperatures long enough that it's already safe to drink. Well, this little plastic vial with this wax in it, you just hang it in your pot with the wax to the top side of it. When the wax melts and goes to the bottom of it, the water's safe to drink. So you can use it for sanitizing water that way. Instead of, you know, using an open fire boil method. So it's good for that. And uh, it'll boil if you give it enough time. I mean, my solar oven routinely hits 350 to 375 degrees. That's way beyond 212. So it will boil water. Since it'll boil water, pasta and rice, no problem. The thing with pasta and rice, though, in a solar oven, if you absolutely don't want to put your water in there cold, throw your pasta or rice in there, and then stick it in. Now, you wouldn't do that on a regular oven. So what you'll do is you'll throw your pot in there until the water gets up to really, really screaming hot or boiling, either or. And when you get to the point you want it, you would then open it, quickly add your rice to your pasta, cover your pot, shut your oven back up, and go on from there. And this is all in relation to a box-style solar oven like I have. And the video's on my YouTube channel if you want to check out that style. There's a lot of other styles of solar ovens. I don't have a lot of experience with them. But some of them will actually cook much, much faster and will let you do things like grilling. In fact, my solar oven, if you create it, you could basically use a small broiler pan and broil with it. Again, though, you want to preheat before you go ahead and put your meat directly on there. But there's no reason you can't do things like that. Now, make beer, I wouldn't do it. Uh, the capacity's not there for the volume of wort boil that you would need. And making beer is sticky and kind of a messy process, and I think doing it in a solar oven is just not a good idea. Uh, making mead, probably you could at least, um, you know, put a pot with honey, put a pot of water in there get the water up to a heated temperature, dump your honey in there, put it back in there, bring it up to the point where it starts to get the solids coming off the top, making sure that everything's purified and there's no um, natural yeast or anything that's doing anything funny with your mead. Once that's done, dump that into good, clean water to bring up to, like, let's say, a five-gallon batch. You could probably pull that off. I don't think it's very efficient, but if it was the only way you had to do things and you didn't want to just go with a raw honey and kind of you know roll the dice on how it's going to come out method and you want to do some sanitizer, uh, you didn't want to have a fire for whatever reason or couldn't have a fire, it would work. Uh, so good question. Let's go on to the next one. Guy says he's got cottontails, rabbits, right, tearing up the garden. Just, just he can't keep them out of there. He's got a fence around it to get in anyway. They're eating everything up. What would I suggest you do about it? Um, to get rid of them or to control them because it's just too much damage and there's nothing that seems to work. Number one, look to your lawn. What do you mean look to my lawn? Um, All I can tell you from personal experience is we had a garden every year in Pennsylvania, uh, especially growing up as a kid with my grandfather. Um, There were cottontail rabbits in the springtime and the summertime and into early fall everywhere on that property. Any given night, I'd go out and sit on the porch with my grandfather um, and look out in the yard and could probably count half a dozen or more rabbits that could be easily seen. And you know that there were more after the sun went down coming out to uh, feed. We absolutely never had a problem with the rabbits in the garden. The only thing that they would occasionally get into were the um, the crops like broccoli and cauliflower that eat the leaves off them um, and some of the 
lettuces. And all we would do with that was we'd take either uh, a full coffee can with the top and bottom cut off or a half a coffee can and put that around the base, and that would kind of just deter them a little bit. But we really didn't even have much problem with them doing that. So what was the rabbit solution that my grandfather had? His lawn was full of clover. I'd say his lawn was 50% clover. And the rabbits preferred the clover to our vegetables. That's all I can tell you. When we, when we moved up there for our little three-year hiatus, I had a garden. I had no problems with the rabbits in the garden. Uh, we also had a clover lawn. So I can tell you two instances it worked. I'll also tell you the other mitigating circumstance when we moved up there. We had cats. And when we first moved up, there were rabbits everywhere. By the time we left, there weren't a whole lot of rabbits left. Um, the cats did a pretty heavy predatory job, especially on the young rabbits, and that kept the population in check. I'm not saying it's a good idea to let cats run wild. I'm just saying that we had two cats that were not house cats, and uh, they thinned down the population, so it does work. I tell you, throwing a couple of bull snakes out in your property, if you're not afraid of snakes or uh, black rat snakes or something like that, would probably put a little damper on the population as well. Um, but a big rabbit will actually chase a bull snake. I'm sure a lot of you have seen that video. If not, go to YouTube and Google bull Bull snake rabbit, and you'll see what a rabbit can do to a pretty big bull snake. It was a hilarious video. Um, so those are some ideas, and then there's always the good old-fashioned pellet gun if you uh, fancy eating some rabbits. So I don't know. My easiest organic solution has been a heavy clover-based lawn will tend to give the rabbits something they would prefer to eat, and uh, that's been my experience. Next question. Uh, I've answered this one before, but i got like four times in the last two weeks. What the hell is up with your accent, Jack? One minute you're from New Jersey, the next minute you're from Texas. Sometimes I can't tell where you're from. What's up with the changing accent? Well, a simple answer is I live my life all over the country. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, in kind of the swamplands. And Jacksonville, Florida is more like southern Georgia than northern Florida, folks. It's, it's pretty redneck. And then I lived in Pennsylvania through my high school years. Uh, in the coal region, which has its own very unique accent and dialect. Um, If you haven't experienced it, I I can't even really explain it. So I'm sure there's some of that in there. I managed the Northeast for three years for Fluke, where I was in Boston, New York, um, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Hartford, Connecticut, uh, Providence, Rhode Island. I would travel through there every week. So I was with those people. In the Army, I hung out all with a bunch of redneck country boys and people from like Montana and Wyoming Um, and then I lived here for almost a decade in Texas uh, or more now at this point I've been down here even with going back and forth 15 years so it's just I've lived everywhere and I tend to pick up the accents of the people that I'm around Uh, there's actually a forum thread on this I'll link to where people make fun of me and that's cool you can make fun of my accent all you want Um, works for me Um, the next one is a person lives in California uh, they, they've rented a young couple. They have disposable income. With that disposable income, instead of disposing it, they've been saving it. They have $130,000 in cash. They're currently renting. They would really like to buy a place and have at least a half acre or more of land. But right now, what they're thinking about doing is staying in California, making the high California incomes that they have, continuing to save money, and eventually moving out of the state with that money and buying a piece of land. 
here's what I'm going to tell you. That's a good plan. Please don't be an ass clown. Save up a million dollars and go to Montana and continue to drive up the market and make those people up there any more angry at Californians than they already are. Please don't do it that way because a lot of people are doing that, selling big houses in California and driving up land prices, specifically in Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. And I can tell you that the people that live there don't appreciate it. So all you have to do to prevent that is buy smart when you buy. You're going to buy smart anyway. I just thought I'd throw that out because I hear from people up there all the time, these damn West Coast people. Yeah, I know. All right. But I think your plan of save and move is a good one if you're not interested in spending an inordinate longer amount of time in California. Whether to buy now, well, I know you said the prices are steep, but the market is way down in California. Whether to buy now, bet on some level of economic recovery there, and sell and move out or not, I'm not sure about. My gut is absolutely not. So that's my gut. A couple reasons. One, your state's broke. Uh, two, they're taxing the hell out of business. So that leads me to conclusion, you know, call it item three, businesses will be exiting California in the coming years and mass driving the, the economy of, of California down into further problems. And your government out there, your state-level government, doesn't seem to be doing anything to solve the problem. In fact, they seem to be taking direct cues from the ass plan in Washington. So I would not buy right now. With the caveat is if you told me what your rental cost a month was, I might say to buy something if you can for less than that rent, if you could find the... There's always good deals that will be insured in the future based on certain factors. So you might consider it if that rent is higher uh, than what you could maybe buy something equivalent for in the right instance. But my gut is, keep doing what you're doing. You also didn't tell me how long it took you to save 130 k Let me put it to you this way. If all hell breaks loose in California, and it's not national level, you can pretty much go to like 80% of the country and find a decent place and pay cash at 130 k for it, even with some good land. So you could go out and buy a piece of property outright now, depending on what it is for you want to do for the rest of your life life as well. you I, you, know, you got to think about that as well. I don't know your professions, but I would stick with planned California Exodus. And I would take that money and I would put it somewhere with a better future at the state level economically and a better future for you and the life that you want to live. And it sounds like you want some land, you want to do some farming and gardening and things like that. Um, I will also tell you though, start shopping today. Start looking at what you can buy land for elsewhere and immediately, immediately start looking at what $100,000 can buy you. You may never buy something for $100,000 or less. Right? I think a lot of people that come from places like California, Florida, the New York City area, they just never look at that price point. If you look at that price point, even if you end up spending 150 or 250 or 350, you'll get more for your money if you'll shop down there first because it'll ground you in reality. It is so easy to lose that reality. So do things today like go to unitedcountry.com. Start looking for rural real estate under $100,000 anywhere in the United States. Missouri, Arkansas, great places to look. If you're from the West Coast and you're kind of a surfer person or whatever, I know that might not sound cool, but at least get an idea of what real property values are across the country before you decide further. That's the best I can answer that question with the information you gave me. The next question is, how do you determine what makes up a 30-day supply of food? You know, I say always try to initially get to a 30-day supply of food. And this person said, do you just look at stuff and go, that's a meal? 
and that's a meal, and that's a meal, so that's three days worth of meals for three people, so that's day one. Um, on a surface level, especially the first 30 days, yep, it's, it's that easy. Think about it. You don't go out to the grocery store when you're you know, you're thinking, okay, what are we going to have for dinner Wednesday? And you put together the food for dinner Wednesday. You don't go out there and go, okay, well, that gives us all 2,100 calories for the, for the day uh, with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You just go, okay, that's a meal. It's a great way to start. As you begin to move into a more long-term solution, 60 days and beyond, and start to bring long-term storage and stuff like that in, then you need to actually start doing some math on the calories um, and look at at least a 2,000-calorie diet per individual per day. And understand some of you women that are out there on diets of like 1,300 or 1,400 or 1,500 calories right now, that is because you are trying to lose weight when you go to work every day and deal with all the stresses in life the way that they are today, and you're not really exerting yourself other than maybe voluntary exercise. In a shit-hit-the-fan scenario, 2,000 calories may very well be a starvation-edge diet if you're having to exert yourself a lot and do a lot of work. So... That is a bare minimum per day per individual that you need to budget your duration with. That is not to say that you might not get into a situation where you've got 30 days worth of food, realize you have to go 60, and you might not ration to 1,500 to bridge the gap. It's just saying that for your primary planning, that's a pretty good place to be. Um, and I just got the new emergency uh, essentials catalog uh, with my little radio that I'll talk about tomorrow. I'll tell you overall, I'm not exactly pleased with it. Um, but one of the things they had on the cover is they have a little software tool that helps you with your food planning. I haven't checked it out yet, but I'm going to try to do that today if I get some time, and I'll try to put a link in the show notes to it today. And if I can remember what the URL was, I'd give it to you, but I can't. But that little tool might help. I was actually thinking about having a programmer whip one up for me. But if they've done a good job with it, I'll just recommend it, and there's no reason for me to re, uh, reinvent the wheel there. Um, so with that, I think that wraps up today's show. Hopefully it's been a good show for you. Uh, keep the questions coming, folks. And uh, any of you that, like, go uh, it's like kind of questions I want answered, send me your questions, okay? I'm answering the questions that show up. I had a guy last week and goes, the questions were kind of lame last week. I said, did you send me any questions? He said, no. That was his whole answer. So I said, do you have any questions for me? Send. Comes back five seconds later, no. Well, I can't help you. Alright? I'm sorry. You don't have any input. I can't help you. But if you have a great question, send it in. We'll try to get it answered for you. And remember, um, I only get to do these about once a month but I like to do call-in shows with questions at least once a month. I have a a voicemail system set up, and you can dial a toll-free number, 866-65-THINK. Ask your question, and you'll hear it on the air probably a month after you ask it. So if you have a question like, should I be planting XYZ right now, or what do I think of some current event that's happening right now, send it to me by email. Also understand, I don't screen those calls every day. They go into a folder. So don't use them for support. Don't use them to like try to get in touch with me for an interview or anything like that. If you want to get in touch with me directly, email is the way. Facebook, again, I'll interact with you as I find time. Don't send me a message on Facebook if you want an answer today. Email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, and I'll do what I can to help you. On that, I used to answer every email I got. Lately, I haven't been answering most of my emails. I've just been tired, I've been worn out, and I've been getting too many of them. That doesn't mean I don't read them. I read every email you people send me. Every single 
email. I read it, I think about it, I pay attention to it. And then, unfortunately, most of the time lately, unless it's a suggestion or a question, I delete it. Or if it's like a testimonial, I have a folder I keep those in, because one day we may uh, we may make a big deal about how much impact we've had on people's lives. Uh, but I don't get to answer them as much as I used to, because I've started to feel like I'm just not doing you justice when I say, thanks for the kind word sent. That if I don't have time to actually compose the response, just know that I've read it and I've received it and I appreciate you. So again, um, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.